Former President Trump has been invited to testify before a grand jury. A former prosecutor helps us read the tea leaves. I would um, up the could be a possible sign of it to an indictment is coming. For Sunday, March 12th, this is All Things Considered. Michelle Martin. Also this hour, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is teasing a 2024 presidential run. We ask what his legislative priorities for the state tell us about his agenda for the country. We will never ever surrender to the woke mob. Our state is where woke goes to die. And elementary school students team up with NASA to see how a life-saving drug would work in space. At such a young age, we found out big science. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Clients of the collapsed Silicon Valley Bank are eagerly anticipating an outcome as regulators seek a solution to Friday's collapse. NPR's Amy Held reports the financial crisis of 2008 is informing the government response this time around. Across the Fed, the Treasury and elsewhere, U.S. officials are working on what to do about the SVB collapse. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy telling Fox News they have the tools to handle this, and he expects they may reveal how before Monday morning. They are working to try to come forward with some announcement before the markets open. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told CBS's Face the Nation the response will not entail a federal bailout like the big banks got 15 years ago. The reforms that have been put in place means that we're not going to do that again. Yellen says they're focused on avoiding contagion after regulators shut SVB on Friday, stranding billions of dollars from thousands of companies and investors. Amy Held, NPR News. Off the coast of San Diego, at least eight people are dead, seven are listed as missing after two suspected migrant boats capsized as they approached shore in thick fog and choppy surf. Officials say no additional victims were immediately found in the water. San Diego Lifeguard Chief James Gartland says a severe riptide likely made it difficult for anyone to exit the boats. You could land in some sand or get to waist-high, knee-high water and think that you're safe and be able to exit the water, but there's long inshore holes. So if you step into those holes, those rip currents will pull you along the shore and then back out to sea. All the victims were adults, and authorities say they believe more bodies will be recovered. Meanwhile, the state is bracing for another atmospheric river storm with more heavy rains and possibly severe flooding. This after a levee failure on the Pajaro River in Montferry County this weekend triggered flooding that led to thousands being evacuated. Around 13,000 power customers are still in the dark. In his sharpest rebuke yet of his former running mate, former Vice President Mike Pence says former President Donald Trump endangered his family on January 6th. Pence, who's considering a run for president, made the remarks at a formal dinner in Washington, D.C. last night. And Pierre Scott Detrow has more. Despite the fact that many of the people who attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th did so with the goal of hunting down or even killing Pence, he's tried to strike a neutral ground when talking about Trump and the Capitol attack. Pence has defended his refusal to go along with overturning the election, but often stuck to language along the lines of him and Trump never, quote, seeing eye to eye about that day. Speaking to journalists and insiders at the gridiron dinner last night, Pence shifted tone. He said Trump was wrong to encourage the crowd to head to the Capitol and that, quote, his reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
Speed restrictions will remain in effect for the entire MBTA Green Line and the Mattapan High Speed Line. Restrictions are also in effect for parts of the blue, orange, and red lines as track inspections continue. Last Thursday, system-wide slowdowns were ordered when the T discovered track safety paperwork was missing or inconsistent. Well, the transition was made early today, back to daylight savings time. Senator Ed Markey is lobbying for a bipartisan bill to make the time change permanent, with an opt-out for states who choose to do so. The Massachusetts Democrat says he's heard from small businesses that more people headed home from work and school stopped to shop thanks to daylight savings. A similar bill was passed last year by the Senate, but failed in the House. Well, here's a good news story. Tickets for Boston Bruins playoff games went on sale today, although scheduling and other details have yet to be determined. The Bruins made history yesterday with the team's 50th win of the season in Game 64. That sets an NHL speed record for reaching 50 wins. Now the bad news. The Bruins lost to Detroit this afternoon by a score of 5-3. to three. A significant coastal storm is on the way. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says it will start tomorrow night and last into early Wednesday. The storm will strengthen and pass near or over Cape Cod during that time. Many will start as rain but transition to a wet pasty snow. The highest totals will be focused outside of 495 north and west of the city where a foot or more may fall and some outages are likely there. Lower accumulations farther east but still a plowable event likely for the remainder of the Bay State. The wind will be strong all day Tuesday with the highest gusts at the coast late Tuesday into early Wednesday. Noyce says there will be minor coastal flooding and beach erosion along the coast. Prior to the storm, partly cloudy skies, 30s overnight tonight and increasing clouds tomorrow. Temperatures tomorrow will hold only in the 30s. Right now in Boston, 43 degrees. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Former President Donald Trump has been invited to speak to a Manhattan grand jury this week. The move is being seen as a sign that Trump could soon face criminal charges related to allegations that he paid hush money to Stephanie Clifford, the adult film star also known as Stormy Daniels. Such an action, if it occurs, would be extraordinary. Trump would become the first former president in U.S. history to be indicted. Now, Trump has faced so many legal issues for so long, involving everything from allegations of sexual misconduct to fraud, that we thought this would be a good time to take a look at this specific matter to ask what we know, what we can expect, and why it matters. For this, we called Harry Littman. He's a former federal prosecutor and senior legal affairs columnist for the Los Angeles Times. He's also the host of the Talking Feds podcast, where he's been following many of Trump's legal battles, and he's with us once again. Harry Littman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Always a pleasure. So before we jump into thinking about what's ahead for this case, would you just as briefly as you can, remind us of this specific issue in the, what I think most people think of as the Stormy Daniels case and, and why it matters. So Stormy Daniels emerges on the eve of the election uh, looking for payment, uh, otherwise saying she will reveal that, that she and the then uh, presidential candidate had an affair. And Trump played ball with her and arranged for a payment, but did it um, in a bit of a... Um, 
deceptive way. And it's that deception having to do with the misreporting of the payment to her as actual legal fees to Michael Cohen that is the crime under New York law. The actual payment of hush money to a mistress, as it turns out, is not a crime. So the charge is you misreported your income here. You know, they get they get you on the papers, as always. Is there some broader significance to this? I mean, is this a tax matter that could attend to any private citizen? Or is this a relevant factor because this was a candidate and that was making payments in order to circumvent laws around disclosure of political contributions and things of that sort? Yeah, another great question, because it is both. So the simple misreporting, it doesn't matter that you're a candidate, but that's just a misdemeanor. However, if it's done in the service of another crime, then it becomes a felony. And we don't know, we have to see the indictment, but it looks as if the other crime that the DA is pursuing is basically a campaign finance violations. Is it true that inviting a potential defendant to testify is often a prelude to criminal charges? Can can you help us understand that? Yes, there are two signs this week. One is they've invited him, quote unquote, to come on in and testify. And tomorrow, Monday, Michael Cohen, who's the star witness, is testifying. And that's somebody you withhold till the very end. Uh, A, to give him maximum persuasive value, but B, and more importantly, to make sure there's nothing he says that is going to be inconsistent with the testimony that came before. I think most people with experience in the New York criminal justice system would say this isn't a wink and a nod or a strong indication. This is happening. Do you think that what happens in this case will influence all these other investigations into President Trump's actions. As we said, that there's just, there are a myriad of cases. I mean, matters involving whether he sexually assaulted a woman who's a, you know, fairly well-known, you know, columnist. Um, There's another, there's this matter about whether he manipulated the valuations of his properties, you know, for different contexts. So there's just, just an array of other matters. Does does what happens here affect any of those in any way? I think any of those in any way, yes. I think it will probably light a fire under the Fulton County DA, who we'd been assuming would be first. Certainly, if he's convicted, that is admissible evidence in the E. Jean Carroll case that you're talking about. But the other prosecutions and the most important important one, the federal one, I think the prosecutors will just keep their heads down and not be um, uh, not be impacted by it. And, you know, this is seismic. It's the first time in the history of the republic. But I think if we flash forward three, four months, there'll be two, three, maybe more criminal charges pending against the former president. And at that point, who happened to go first, I think will recede in importance in front of a whole um, morass of different legal, criminal, and civil battles. That is Harry Littman. He's a former Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the Department of Justice. He currently hosts the Talking Feds podcast. Harry Littman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Michelle. 
By now, the world knows that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has devastated parts of the country, killed hundreds of thousands of people and displaced millions more, and destroyed huge swaths of critical infrastructure. And many people also know that the invasion has affected food supplies around the world since Ukraine was the breadbasket of Europe. But what many people might not know or have focused on yet is that these effects may last for years. As a result of the weapon we use, the toxic remnants of the war can indefinitely change the agricultural landscape of the country. Joe Hupi has studied this. He is a digital soil geomorphologist in aviation and forestry at Purdue University. He's tested and analyzed the soil in Vietnam and areas of France that were affected by the world wars. And he's with us now to tell us more. Professor Hupi, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me on the show. Soil tests performed by scientists found high concentrations of toxins like mercury, arsenic, and other pollutants that, you know, we assume are byproducts of the war in Ukraine. It's my understanding that these tests show that these toxins are in millions of acres of farmland and forest. Can you help us try to understand the scope of the long-term issues that Ukraine farmlands could be facing? The same soil that's extremely fertile is also a soil that is going to cling on to a lot of these toxins following the war. And even though we're kind of winding back to stalemate conditions like we had in World War I, we have much, much more modern munitions. We have cluster bomblets that can linger around and degrade. And we also have depleted uranium rounds. And we have explosives that have a lot more different types of chemicals in them than we did in the past. That sounds very uh, dire. And so I guess the question now is, is there any way this can be can be fixed? I mean, is there any way this can be, that these harmful effects can be reversed? I mean, yes. And if, and if we look at this, you know, such as with other wars, one of the things that you would see is that in Vietnam, in France, on the Verdun battlefield is that there are areas that are much more heavily disturbed than in others. And a lot of this comes down to where the stalemate conditions were and proximity to water table, how much clay you have in the soil. And a lot of that is just going to relate to more or less a lot of the tools that Ukraine uses right now in waging warfare, such as the drones that can take high resolution imagery on demand following this war effort, those same pieces of technology can be first used to assess the amount of damage, but then with the right sensors on board, you can monitor areas where you have stress in the crops, where you have stressed conditions, and those areas can be pinpointed to address the mitigation efforts. But I guess I, when, the question I have is like, how long does that take, assuming that at some point, hopefully, this conflict comes to an end? <sighs> I, I wish I knew the answer to that, but what, what's really interesting is if we look at one of the largest acute high magnitude disturbances rendered by humans, it occurred in Ukraine, and that's Chernobyl. And in fact, one of the issues is that in Ukraine, where the Russians were around Chernobyl, there were many reports of them being forced to dig trenches in contaminated soils and kicking back up the same radioactive contaminants that that were supposed to be left lying in place. But if we look at something like Chernobyl and we look at what is now one of the most diverse ecosystems out there, because of the lack of human impact, we might be able to kind of look at this and say, 
the vestiges of this war are going to last for a very long time. And if we look at the impacts of this war, we don't want to just think about the chemical contaminants in the soil. One of the biggest issues that we're going to see here is that you're, you have trenches crisscrossing the eastern portions of, of, this, of this war in the eastern portions of Ukraine where these stalemate conditions are. Those trenches are probably going to linger for a long time because in many cases, it's not going to be that easy to plow them over. In those trenches, you're going to have a lot of stored munitions that might be left behind. You have issues from heavy vehicles and tanks going through areas when they were quagmired in mud. And then, of course, you had munition storage. And so those areas, I would say, are going to last for a very, very long time. All these unexploded shells, that's one of the saddest and most apparent vestiges of war. And when we think of the chemical contamination, a lot of that can and will be leached out through time in the order of maybe 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, in some cases up to 100 years. But that'll go away. But if we Think about the vestiges of war in terms of unexploded shells. In France, there are still tractors that are hitting unexploded shells and, and blowing up tractors. There are still stacks of unexploded shells on the, on the sides of fields from farmers having to get out and physically remove them. And what we'll see in Ukraine is, unfortunately, we're going to see a lot of people getting killed or injured in the, in the years afterwards from all of these forgotten ex unexploded shells. That is Professor Joe Hupi. He teaches at Purdue University, and he joined us to talk about the toxic substances accumulating in Ukraine, especially in their farmland. Professor Hupi, thanks so much for talking to us about this. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. Lend us your ears anywhere with a new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. WBUR supporters include Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Prepare for a dynamic career with a master's in mental health counseling. 94% of grads hold clinical jobs or are in private practice. GRE not required and state licensure eligible. Now accepting applications for fall. More at bgsp.edu. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the federal government won't bail out the failed Silicon Valley Bank, but she says she's been working to address the situation in a timely way. The FDIC insures deposits up to 250000 but more than 90 percent of the bank's customers are said to have had more than that on deposit.
Off the coast of San Diego, at least eight people are dead. Several others are missing after two suspected migrant boats capsized as they approached the shore in heavy fog and choppy seas. Officials say all the victims were adults. And in his sharpest rebuke yet of his former running mate, former Vice President Mike Pence says former President Donald Trump endangered his family on January 6th. Pence is considering a run for president. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been popping up around the country as he teases an anticipated presidential bid. Officially, the governor is promoting his new book, but that book and the events around it tout his record in Florida as a blueprint for a national agenda. Uh, I think we really uh, have done a great job of drawing a line in the sand to say the purpose of our schools is to educate kids, not to indoctrinate kids. DeSantis is referring here to his so-called parental rights in education law that was passed last year. It's been dubbed the don't say gay law by opponents because it restricts schools from teaching kids from kindergarten to third grade about gender identity and sexual orientation. The Florida legislature began last week, and there are at least two new bills which would expand regulations on sex education in schools. We've called Anna Ceballos to tell us more about all of this. She's a reporter for the Miami Herald, and she's been following Governor DeSantis and these new bills closely, and she's with us now. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I just wanted to start by asking you to tell us more about these new education bills. I want to first I want to hear about the substance and then I want to hear about the politics. So the substance first, what would these bills do? Like how might it change what goes on in schools? Right. So so these two bills that have been filed by Republicans, one in the House and one in the Senate, would really build on last year's parental rights and education bill, which prohibited uh, discussions and lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity from kindergarten through third grade. These bills would um, expand that from pre-kindergarten to eighth grade. And they also add a few other provisions that would bar educators and school staff from referring to students with pronouns that differ from those assigned to them at birth, for example. And as currently written, one of the bills would also make it the policy of every single K-12 public school in Florida that, quote, a person's sex is an immutable biological trait and that it is false to ascribe to a person a pronoun that does not correspond to their sex. So they're really trying to take aim at the transgender students in school who might be, um, you know, telling teachers that they have a preferred pronoun. And to put that into context, there are about 16,000 Florida teenagers, which is roughly like 1% of children between the ages of 13 and 17 that are identify as trans here in Florida. These are the two kind of marquee measures that are being touted so far. Are there other measures also expected along these same lines? 
along the culture wars, there really are, um, we are expecting a legislative session that could be culture wars 2.0 or so uh, for solidifying really the platform that DeSantis has been building as he's, you know, flirting with a potential run for president in 2024. Um, and what we're seeing is really a heavy focus again on education, but this time it's on what he calls uh, woke lessons in higher education. So he's trying to take aim and making changes to the diversity, equity and inclusion programs at these universities. So when you keep saying he, so do I, can we assume that these bills are being introduced in the legislature at his request or by his allies? Is, is, that, is that how it works? So DeSantis right now is trying to keep an arm's length with the proposals because he, while he supports the ideas and obviously based on the universe of information that we have on the positions and the stances that he's taken in the last two years, it's fair to say that the legislature is wouldn't be doing this without being sure that it is consistent with the governor's ideology, who's very popular in Florida. But DeSantis is trying to, you know, we've asked for comments specifically on what his stance is on these measures. And he's saying, well, you know, bills change throughout the process. So we we will take a stance when it's appropriate. So he's not really endorsing them as of right now, but we know where he stands on these issues. So let's talk a little bit more about, about him. The governor DeSantis has been traveling around the country uh, California. He's been in California. He's been to Dallas. On Friday, he was in Iowa, interestingly enough, ahead of former President Trump's visit tomorrow. It's it's ostensibly it's a book tour. But from what I can see on just say just seeing him on television, it seems like these are more campaign rallies. Uh, would that be accurate? I mean, I think it's certainly, you know, for someone who's saying that he's not really orchestrating a run for president, he sure knows what that checklist would look like, right? I mean, we're looking at him go to New York, Philadelphia, and Chicago, which are three Democratic metro areas, to talk about pro-law enforcement. He's using really this book tour to present or to introduce himself to a national audience. He still doesn't have um, as big of a name recognition. While he is on national headlines all the time, and he has shown to be really popular in, in Florida, where he recently overwhelmingly won a re-election, um, he's still trying to introduce himself to to voters. So I think he's using this as a, as a test run. So he's still being coy about running for, for president. What is he waiting for? I mean, the working assumption seems to be that he's laying the groundwork. What's, what, what would he be waiting for? One thing to keep in mind, I think maybe it's, it's timing, right? I mean, I think he's trying to, again, broaden his platform, like solidify it, strengthen it. And the legislative session just started and he has an opportunity to really strengthen the policies that he's been pushing uh, for the past two years to really grow what he can run on if he does decide to run. And that legislative session ends in May. There's still enough time once that is over and once he has a portfolio that would be worthy of, you know, a national platform. So I think he's really trying to to, to see what more he can do as governor. I think it's really fair to say that the legislative session is gonna be used as a springboard for what he can potentially do with an announcement so he can have you know, the splashiest of announcements if he does decide to make one. As I think his travel schedule indicates and as the interest in him sort of indicates, he seems to be among at least a good portion of Republicans, their kind of hope, hope for the presidency as a replacement for the former president, uh, Donald Trump. Why is there so much hype around him? I think during the pandemic, he really became a household name when it came to 
the pushback right on vaccines and everything that was really going on in the country and now that he has shown that you know in 20 in the 2022 election that he won florida by a nearly 20 point margin where in the state that is won usually by razor thin margins um and i think that with um at least what we've heard from conservatives is that you know they do sometimes prefer trump but they do see desantis as a trump candidate without the baggage without the legal disputes without the potential criminal charges hanging on the on the horizon um so so th that is an appeal that we hear from conservatives here that is anna ceballos she's a reporter for the miami herald anna thanks so much for sharing this reporting and these insights with us of course thank you so much now we want to turn our attention to President Biden's proposed budget, which he released this past Thursday. The $6.8 trillion budget contains a list of his priorities for the upcoming fiscal year. And of course, it covers all functions of the federal government, from defense to the national parks. But we want to drill down on one thing, Medicare. That's the federal health insurance program for people age 65 or older. President Biden made a point of emphasizing his commitment to the program in an op-ed for The New York Times, saying his plan will shore up the program's finances so no one needs worry that it will be there when they need it. Now, Republican leaders insist that Medicare is off the table as negotiations over the debt ceiling are set to begin in Washington. But others in the party have floated the idea of making changes over time, including benefit cuts, saying that's going to be necessary. We wanted to better understand what this is all about. So we've called Julie Rovner, a veteran health policy journalist. She's the Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News, and she hosts their weekly health policy news podcast, What the Health? And she's with us now. Julie Rovner, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Could, so could you just kind of frame the issue for us here? Like, why is is President Biden making such a big deal out of his commitment to Medicare? And, and just what what is the issue here? Well, I think that the way to think about this is that there's basically three ways to make Medicare cost less. And we do know that the Medicare's trustee says that within six years, the trust fund is going to run out of reserves. And so it won't be able to pay all of the current benefits. So basically, in order to bring down the cost, you can make the people who are on the program pay more. You can make taxpayers who help support the program pay more. Or you can pay healthcare providers, doctors and hospitals and all those folks less. So those are your three options. Um, everybody considers any of those things, quote unquote, cuts, although paying providers less is usually only considered a cut to the providers. Um, yeah, they matter. Yeah, they do. They matter if they stop providing. I was just going to say, if the cuts get too big and they say we'll walk away from the program, that's a problem too. But Medicare is very popular. And I think in the State of the Union, when the president said he wasn't going to do anything to Medicare, people sort of slapped back and said, but Medicare is going to go broke if we don't do anything. So in the budget, he said, well, here are a couple of things that we could do, none of which affect how much beneficiaries pay. Okay, so give us the top lines of what he's proposing. It's actually fairly small. Um, last year, for the first time, Medicare was given legal permission to negotiate the price of drugs. There was a short list of drugs. This budget would make the list longer, and it would have those negotiations happen faster. It would also raise a tax on very high-income earners, those earning over $400,000. They'd raise that tax from 3.8% to 5%. So the president says that uh, the Republicans need to release their budget priorities. Republicans have said that they can balance the budget over the next decade, but they won't touch Medicare. Is that a credible stance? 
It is, but only if they go after Medicaid, the actually larger program for people with low incomes, and the subsidies on the Affordable Care Act, which the president has now also said he won't go after. It is possible, but you would have to cut so much from the rest of the budget if you don't do anything about Medicare and Social Security. That's why we haven't seen a Republican plan yet. They're still trying to figure it out. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has already said publicly that the Biden budget agenda, especially his plan to increase the Medicare tax on high earners, quote, will not see the light of day, unquote. So what are we likely to see next? Well, at some point, you know, the two parties are going to have to come together before the Medicare trust fund runs out of money. This is not the first time we've been within this close period where the trust fund could run out of money. It's happened several times in the past. Eventually, the parties do get together and figure out some way to shore it up. And I'm sure that will happen this time, too. But I suspect this year is going to be more of a fight leading up to the 2024 elections. And as we said, the talks over the the debt ceiling is approaching. The leaders of both parties have said that Medicare is off the table, but there is a caucus within the Republicans that are very um, eager to advance budget cuts somehow, or at least spending cuts somehow, or spending caps somehow. Forgive me for asking you to speculate, but is it conceivable that Medicare won't be implicated at some point in these talks. Oh, no, of course, Medicare is going to be implicated at some point in these talks. First of all, what Republican leaders say is not necessarily what all of the Republican rank and file will do. It's true of the Democrats, too. Um, So it's hard to imagine that it won't be put on the table in some way, shape or form. So what are you going to be paying attention to as these discussions continue over the next couple of weeks and months, really? Yeah. Um, you know, what they what the proposals are, as I say, they something needs to be done to Medicare, lest it run out of money. So I think that pretty much the entire federal panoply of health programs uh, is going to be up for discussion. And that's what I'll be watching. And before I let you go, what about the public? I mean, I, I think if you watch... Um you know, broadcast television, the people who still watch television that actually has commercials. Um, you know, there's just been a flood of commercials around Medicare in recent uh, weeks, at least, you know, where I live. And I'm just wondering, is this the kind of subject that the public really can focus on? But is this the kind of thing that the public can really get galvanized around? It can and it can't. What we've seen recently in all the ads um, have to do with a payment issue within Medicare Advantage, which is the private alternative to Medicare that the government does help pay for. Um, And basically, it's the managed care industry having an argument. But if, as you said at the top, if cutting back payments to managed care companies means that they'll have fewer benefits for the beneficiaries, then people really could get behind that. So the trick is, you know, how this gets negotiated and how it gets presented to the public as to whether it will actually affect their health care. That was Julie Ravner. She's the Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of their weekly health policy news podcast, What the Health. Julie Ravner, thanks so much for sharing these insights with us once again. Thank you. You're listening to NPR News. 
We often tell our kids to shoot for the stars. Students at a Canadian elementary school did just that. They teamed up with NASA to see if a life-saving drug would work in space. Their experiment was sent up in a rocket, and they made a big discovery. EpiPens used to deliver emergency treatment for severe allergic reactions may not work in space. So how did they figure it out? First, like all good scientists, they started with a question. We really wanted to know for all the people who rely on EpiPens or epinephrine, if they ever went to space or astronauts in space, would we be able to rely on these things? That's Raina Smith, one of the students who worked on the project. Once she and her classmates figured out the question, they needed to find a way to test whether space travel would affect epinephrine or not. Kara Murray says the next step was to make an educated guess. So our hypothesis was that if the epinephrine went to space, the radiation would change the molecular structure because on Earth, the UV radiation from the sun changes it. So the ionizing radiation in space should change the molecular structure of the epinephrine in the EpiPen solution. The students partnered with Professor Paul Meyer, a chemist at the University of Ottawa. Using specialized tools, they compared the molecular structure of the pure epinephrine and the EpiPen solution before spaceflight and after spaceflight. The pure epinephrine turned into 13% benzoic acid, which is toxic. So that would make the epinephrine poisonous. And the EpiPen solution resulted there were no epinephrine molecules remaining. For Reina, the results were pretty exciting. I was really happy because it's incredible to know that at such a young age, we could potentially be making an impact on the world. And at such a young age, we found out big science. And the students aren't done yet. So this year, the next steps are first to validate our results and see if we get the same results as last year, and then to also design some sort of protective system to hopefully protect the pure epinephrine and EpiPens solution in space. We also wanted to know if they had any advice they wanted to pass on based on their success. Kara says, Don't be afraid to try to answer your question, even if it may seem silly, or if you think that it might seem obvious, and you might find out something really big. And for Reina, There's no right age to try and do something new with science. Anyone at any age can discover something new as long as you have the passion and you put your 100% in. How big are their plans? Some might say out of this world. I really do hope that we can design something to protect the EpiPen solution and pure epinephrine in space so that in the future anyone that has anaphylactic allergies or relies on EpiPens or pure epinephrine. If they want to, they can go to space or even colonize Mars in the future. That was Cara Murray and Raina Smith. They are students at St. Brother Andre Elementary School's program for gifted learners in Ottawa, Canada. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, with pandemic restrictions lifted, tourists are returning to Mississippi's famous Blues Trail, and museums are trying to do more to honor the connection between blues music and civil rights history. But there's a battle over how this history is taught. We are still in the South, and there's a political game that you play, unfortunately, because 
You have to do it in a way not to offend. You can listen to that story tomorrow on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for spending part of your Sunday with us. Coming up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight with lows dropping into the 30s. Increasing clouds tomorrow, temps hold in the 30s, and then a major storm overspreads the area tomorrow night with rain changing to heavy wet snow, heavy accumulations depending on where you are, with damaging winds gusting up to 60 miles an hour. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. California is cleaning up from several storms that left towns and roads flooded in the central part of the state. The National Weather Service says another atmospheric river with heavy rains is expected to hit the same area tomorrow, which could lead to additional flooding. Israelis are protesting again this weekend over the government's plans to overhaul the judicial system. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu proposed a series of bills that curbed the power of the Israeli Supreme Court, which critics say changes those changes are a threat to judicial independence. And at the weekend box office, Scream 6 took the top spot, debuting with $44 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. We're going to return now to one of this country's most emotional and challenging issues, immigration. Governors in several border states have been busing arrivals to their states to large cities on the East Coast. But months into this, some cities are still scrambling to offer adequate services to people. New York, for example, could end up spending a billion dollars this fiscal year in support of these migrants, which the city's mayor, Eric Adams, has called unsustainable. And at the same time, the Biden administration is moving to make it easier to bring migrants from a few countries to the U.S. as long as they have family in the U.S. to support them. Much of the work supporting migrants so far has fallen to faith groups and other organizations, so we wanted to talk to someone who's been a part of this network for some time. Reverend Juan Carlos Ruiz is a pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church that's in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and he's with us now to talk about his efforts to help and what he's seeing. Reverend Juan Carlos, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Michelle. 
So as we were saying, some 50,000 migrants have made their way to New York over the past year. Many people have been bused from states like Texas and Florida. Would you just tell us some of the stories that you've heard from them? What are some of the circumstances that brought them to New York? So many of them are coming, you know, with their whole family. So you're talking about children in their arms, tracking through jungles, being chased by cartels. I mean, horrifying stories of bodies being found in the jungle as they go up the mountains, as they cross rivers. So this is really a human catastrophe. Talk about some of what awaits people when they're coming to New York. I mean, we get the sense that that you and other people in the community have just really been struggling to keep up. So, you know, are there services out there to meet people, to help them get settled? Like, how does it work? Many times it doesn't work. And that's where we come in, you know, as uh, communities of faith. Unfortunately, they are coming into a housing system that has been overwhelmed. And so people are scrambling just to find uh, some firm footing uh, you know, a dignified place to rest. What we see is that many people are disconnected, disoriented, misinformed. After traveling on foot for two months, three months, they need a, a place that they can feel secure. What are some of the things that you and other members of the church do when people come to you? How do you help them? So we've been giving them out phones, uh, metro cards, uh, food, warm food. Many people complain that in the shelter system or in the hotels that they've been placed, they don't have uh, spaces to cook. Mm. Uh, so, yes, we have the abuelitas, you know, the grandmothers in our communities, basically uh, cooking for them and, and being, being family to them. Uh, anything that humanizes, because we have to remember this is a, a humanitarian crisis. You know, the Biden administration has expanded temporary protected status to provide relief to people from places, that, you know, that are experiencing instability, like Venezuela, Haiti, Cuba, I think Ukraine. I was wondering, how have you seen that play out on the ground? Because there are a lot of people who are, have family members from these countries but a lot of people really took a hit during the coronavirus pandemic. You know, a lot of people's hours were cut that, you know, some people lost their jobs. And I'm just wondering if you are hearing from people who would like to perhaps help family members, but they're struggling themselves. Can you tell me anything about that? In our church, in our community, we have a mixed population. So we have a lot of undocumented people who have been living in the shadows for the last 20 years. There is a great deal of frustration to see that some people are coming in, you know, the recently uh, arrivals that have a protected status. Well, they themselves who are growing families here, who have been paying taxes for the last 20 years, there is nothing for them. Hmm. So uh, the tension is really being exacerbated. How does that play out? Like, what kinds of things are you hearing about that? For example, just I'm just saying an acquaintance of mine was telling me that you know, father has relatives back in the home country and the father has been here for some time, was able to attain legal status, um, has raised his family and would like to retire. But now the family members who are overseas want him to sponsor them and he just feels exhausted and he's just feels so conflicted that he doesn't know 
what to do. And I was just wondering if you are hearing stories like that. All the time, Michelle. I mean, we are hearing not only those stories, but stories of a great deal of uh, extending that generosity that this country has extended to people in the past. But, you know, how do they how do they pay back that? You know, they come because uh, they say we want to make this country great. We don't want to take anything away. And we have seen this in the past. Uh, And they say that to me, you know, uh, this is the land of opportunities. We know that we have a shot in in this. So they, they come with a great sense of hope. That's the Reverend Juan Carlos Ruiz. He's currently a pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. He's also the co-founder of the National New Sanctuary Movement and the New Sanctuary Coalition of New York City. It's an organization led by and for immigrants who are facing detention and deportation. Reverend Juan Carlos, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Great speaking with you. It's Oscar night, so we thought this would be a good time to pay homage to a convention of modern movies. It can be traced back to the original Rocky, the Academy Award winner for Best Picture in 1977. I am talking about the training montage. It's still going strong in the latest and ninth installment of the Rocky franchise, Creed III, which is in theaters now. Tim Grieving has the history of this art form in miniature. It's a freezing cold Philadelphia morning. Rocky Balboa wakes up at the crack of dawn, gulps down a glass of raw eggs, bundles up in his drab sweatsuit and Chuck Taylors, and heads out to begin his run in the train yards. In reality, this is probably a miserable workout, but in a training montage, it becomes movie magic. So what's interesting about the training? Well, not much. But could there be a story in the story? Bill Conti composed the score for Rocky in 1976. He says director John G. Avildsen came to him with, quote, 10 miles of just raw footage of Sylvester Stallone jogging, punching a medicine ball, doing one-handed push-ups, and boxing slabs of beef. John Avildsen says, Bill, give me about a minute and a half's worth of music so I can cut something together. Minute and a half of this boring training should be enough to get me started. Conti took his main Rocky theme, which we've heard more slowly and wearily earlier in the picture, and made it more athletic, more aspirational. Music that you're trained to, so everybody knows what that is. In disco, I mean, in days you put on that jump around music and listen to some kind pink shorts telling you (laughs) to jump higher and faster. He recorded his idea on piano and gave the tape to Avildsen and the editors. Run, give me the one running. Where's the punching bag? Ah, oh, the punching bag doesn't fit as good as the bag. Do the medicine ball. Okay, how many miles of this can we take? But then here in the music, oh, the music changes here. Let's go here, let's go there. He's running. Uh, oh, I like the running up the stairs. I'll leave that for last. As Avildsen cut the montage together, it began to form a miniature story of overcoming adversity, to the point where Rocky is practically taking flight at the top of the stairs leading to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Avildsen kept making it longer, asking Conti to write 30 more seconds of music, then 30 more seconds, until the final sequence was about three minutes long. He says, well, look, it's like he's getting stronger during the whole thing. Can't we say that? I said, well, John, it's your movie. You can say anything you want.
This Frankenstein sequence, powered by the heroic Rocky theme and backed with a 70s disco rhythm, became an iconic part of the Oscar-winning film, and every Rocky movie since has had a training montage. Rocky III opens with the Italian stallion on a winning streak and getting soft with fame, as his nemesis Clubber Lang, played by Mr. T, trains to take down the champ. Stallone, who by now was directing the Rocky movies, phoned up Jim Peterick of the band Survivor. He was already my hero. You know, my, my wife and I, we named our cat Rocky because we liked those, those first two movies so much. He says, well, I got this new movie called Rocky Three, and I don't want to use that Gonna Fly Now song again, you know. I want something for the kids, something with a pulse. Can you help me out? This time, the montage was already cut together when Stallone sent Peterick a rough cut on Betamax. And, uh, you know, we see Mr. T rising up, you know, looking really tough, you know, and Stallone doing master charge commercials and getting a little soft. And uh, I just was feeling the, the pulse of that, you know, and I just started going, you know, just like that. And I see the punches being thrown and I was just trying to... The result, Eye of the Tiger, joined Gonna Fly Now as one of the most popular workout tracks of all time. By the time director Ryan Coogler revived the series with Creed in 2015, the training montage was an established tradition he didn't want to mess with. But he and his composer Ludwig Göransson made it their own. Adonis Creed, played by Michael B. Jordan, is training for a climactic fight, as per usual, but this time it's intercut with Rocky going through cancer treatment. Old age and youth, sickness and health, Göransson symbolized that with a loving homage to Bill Conti and Gonna Fly Now, but with a powerful hip-hop energy. The training montage has clearly taken on a life of its own, which of course means it has inspired parodies. Like in an episode of the TV show Arrested Development, when Michael Bluth trains for a father-son triathlon, to the strains of a song called Balls in the Air. It's a funny spoof, but like us, deep down, it knows that training montages rule. For NPR News, I'm Tim Grieving. And finally today, a few words from me. I hope you've heard some of the installments in the series from our friends at The Hidden Brain called My Unsung Hero, recounting stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression. It made me think about my unsung heroes, and I realized I have a lot of them. There's my friend Wendy, who, along with her sisters, has been collecting and shipping boxes of school supplies to under-resourced schools in Ghana every year, ever since I've known her. And that's going on 17 years now. And I'm not talking about one suitcase full of random colored pencils or whatever. I'm talking about 15 or 20 giant cartons filled with notebooks, paints, paper, crayons, soccer balls, you name it, every single year. I was thinking about my neighbors, Paula and Beth, who just seem to magically show up whenever you need help with something, whether it's a book drive or clothing drive, or to figure out how to get lunch for the COVID-19 health workers or to tone down a neighborhood beef. There's my friend Sabrina, who, now that she's an empty nester, helps all of her friends navigate tricky issues with their kids' education. 
But there's one particular unsung hero I wanted to tell you about, and that is the late, great television correspondent Bruce Morton. He had a long career at CBS and CNN before he passed away in 2014. He's my unsung hero because he saved me from making a terrible mistake that I honestly think might have short-circuited my career. This came after I was offered a job in broadcasting after I had started my career working my way through local, state, and national politics and policy in newspapers. I actually didn't really know Bruce except to say hi when he somehow got my phone number and seemingly out of the blue left an important message on my home answering machine. Yes, it was that long ago. He was brief but to the point. He basically told me that the job I had been offered might look glamorous on the outside, but might actually be a dead end for me in the long run. And he left his name, that famous sign-off. This is Bruce Morton. That was the kind of straight answer I had been looking for, but couldn't seem to get from any of the people I had consulted, many of whom also, weirdly it seemed to me at the time, kept swearing me to secrecy, reminding me not to tell anybody I had talked to them. I guess it was a TV thing, not really sure. Anyway, I turned the job down after that. And eventually, I was offered better jobs until I finally took one, one that did allow me to learn and grow, and I took others after that until here we are. But I never got to thank him, so I'm glad to do so now. And I hope, wherever he or his kids or grandkids are, they get to hear me say how much I appreciated that honesty and outreach at a time when I really needed it. And you might be asking, why didn't I thank him at the time? Because people were being so weird, swearing me to secrecy. I was afraid he'd get into trouble when I turned down the job. In any case, obviously, now that won't happen. You may also ask, why am I talking about this now? Well, a few weeks ago, I got another call out of the blue from someone I also don't know very well, but whom I respect very much, asking me if I would consider taking another role here at NPR. The person said he thought this other role would be a good fit for me and I would be good for it. This time, I knew enough about the company and the job that I didn't have to ask too many questions. So I said yes. It's time for me to try something new, to move into a new role in which I think I can continue to grow and also contribute. So this will be my last Sunday with you. I'm going to take a short break, and then in a couple of weeks, I will join you at the other end of the broadcast day on Morning Edition, where I'll be joining up with Steve Inskeep and Leila Fadel and A. Martinez. I hope you'll join me, I mean us, then. I want to thank everybody on the Weekend All Things Considered teams, past and present. We've done so much together. We've spent hours together in the studio, in tiny rental cars, in makeshift studios set up on the fly in hotel rooms. We've shared many good meals and a few bad ones. We've had lots of laughs and, frankly, some tears. We've tried to make your weekends richer, more fun, more thoughtful. We did our best, and I'm sure that whoever sits in this chair next will do the same. Bye-bye.